Good evening. It is good to be together. Tonight I want to continue on that series we've been kind of doing on Sunday evenings about finding God. A few weeks ago we talked about the subject of communication and how communication or languages are an indication of intelligence. And the very existence of communication points to the evidence that it, that is communication languages, originated with the supreme intelligent creator of all men and of all things. And so God, our creator, not only created different ways of communication, but he himself communicates and has communicated with mankind because God is love. Love communicates. Love communicates with the object, with those whom are loved. And so God, in his goodness, in his greatness, has communicated to us. The Bible claims to be the very revelation of the mind and of the will of the one true living God, our creator. But is it credible? Is the Bible reliable? Is is it true? Is it trustworthy? If it is not reliable or credible or trustworthy, then the faith of Christian, then your and my faiths are meaningless. If it is not true, if it is not God's word truly, then our faith becomes vain and empty. The Bible is, in its entirety, the inspired word of God to man. It is that, or it is not. It is not, it's not something in the middle. It is completely what it claims to be, or it is not what it claims to be. So let's begin with a well-known passage found in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We have the scriptures, Paul writing to the evangelist and reminding him that all scripture, all scripture is the God-breathed message to humanity. And so it says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. So Paul, the apostle of Christ, makes the claim and makes the argument that all scripture is inspired of God. It is or it isn't. And tonight's lesson is is just an effort for us to remind ourselves of the trustworthiness and the credibility of the Word of God, the Bible. That it is truly from God as we deal with all the skepticism, all the opposition in the world that tries to discredit the inspired scriptures. The very nature of the inspired Word of God is that it it demands that the text... The original text is infallible, 
and it is inerrant. If it's going to be the God-breathed message in its entirety, then it has to be infallible and it has to be inerrant. What do we mean by that? Well, the message of God cannot teach deception. If it's going to be infallible and inerrant, it cannot teach any kind of deception. It must be completely truth. Nor will it be proven to be false. If it's infallible and if it's inerrant, because it's the inspired of God, then it cannot be proven to be false. Now, throughout time, unbelieving skeptics, unbelieving critics have endeavored to constantly call into question the Bible's integrity. The world that rejects God, the world that rejects the message of God is going to constantly oppose that message and try to attack it on some level to try to convince others, not just themselves, others as well, that this is not true and you just need to throw throw it out the window. So that has been going on for quite some time. That the unbelieving uh, people in the world throughout time who rejected God, reject his prophets, have always opposed the message of his prophets. But the various books and the various letters of the Bible did come from God. That's the claim. They came from God while he used the human agency in revealing his words, in revealing his will to us. God, through the Holy Spirit, spoke. God, through the Holy Spirit, put his words in the mouths of his chosen servants. That's the claim of divine inspiration. For example, here's two passages that clearly bring that out. And so, in 2 Peter 1, Peter the apostle says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It didn't originate with men. It's not from, it doesn't come from personal inter- interpretation. He says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. They spoke God's message. They revealed God's were to us as the Holy Spirit guided and directed them. Paul makes the same argument back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and just looking very quickly at one's, you know, one fra- a little bit of a phrase there in verse 13, where it says, Things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom. What is revealed in the scripture is not revealed and taught by human wisdom. It did not originate with man. And so Paul says, we weren't taught the words of human wisdom. No, it was taught to us by the Spirit. So the very words that they were guided to speak and write are by the direction of the Holy Spirit. They weren't just using their own interpretation. They were not just using their own, well, let me see what the best way I can say this. No, the Spirit directed them. And so that's the claim of the Bible, that all Scripture is God is the God-breathed message. Whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, both are God-breathed as God used humans, men, chosen of him to speak and reveal his message. And when you think about that claim, though, 
And the idea, it's inspired. Well, therefore, the Bible, the Bible teaches what God intended it to, to be taught. Whatever the Bible says, it teaches whatever God intended to be taught. Let me go back here and move forward a little, a little quick there. And so and what, it, what it teaches is true. You know, so what, what's, there, what's revealed is there because that's what God wants you to know. That's what God wants the world to know, and that's what the world and I and us, we need to know. And what it does teach is true. Whatever it teaches, it's true. Now, that's a huge claim. The Scriptures claim to be from God in its entirety. The Scripture claim to be God's message, God's revelation from him. And so that claim must be tested. That claim must be measured. If it measures up to the claim, if it measures up to what it says to be true, then it is true. And if it is true, then all men, all of humanity, are accountable to its teaching. That's the power of God's word. If it's true, and it is, it is truly the word of God. Therefore, all men, not just us in this room, we all are accountable to the teaching of God's word, but not just us. All of humanity throughout time are accountable to God's message. So therefore, what are some evidences that we can look at briefly this evening? This is just, you know, like I say, it's not going to cover a whole lot, but touch on some highlights. What are some evidences that testify to this claim that the Bible is divinely inspired? Now, the first point, as you've already seen, is that God's collection here of 66 books is united. It's, it's a complete unit which only the mind of God could accomplish. There's no way, you know, all these different writers and scribes of these scriptures could have compiled and written such unity that we find in the scriptures. So you think about that. In spite of the diversity of 40-some writers over a span of 1,500 to 600 years, so you got, you know, several years there, you know, there's still harmony and there's still oneness that permeates the scriptures. Now, when you think about when you think about this, okay, 40 different over a long period of time, you need to kind of put that in your mind, what that, in, that entails. Well, that means these 40 different writers were separated by time. So these 40, 40 writers did not all live at the same time period. So they're separated by time. So you've got the Old Testament writers, you've got the New Testament writers, and yet there's complete harmony. There's complete oneness. There's a, there is unity throughout, even though they're separated by ages. Secondly, they're separated by geography. You know, they did not all live in the same place. Some of them lived on different continents when they wrote the message that God gave them through the Spirit. And also, they're separated by different walks of life. They're not all like professors, and so they all wrote books. No. They come from a variety of different lifestyles that did, was not necessarily conducive for them to be able to compile and speak and write 
a message that we have contained in the Bible. And so the very nature of this collection of books tells us or is evidence for us that only the mind of God could have accomplished this work. You couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. We couldn't have done it together. Only God could have done this. With that said, at the same time, there is a number of controversial topics that are included in this, in this collection of books that do not divert from its unity. Think about the major, some of the major subjects that are huge controversial issues in the world today. For example, take the subject of God's justice and man's sinful character. The world does not agree on, that, on that, those subjects. Or you take the subjects of marriage and morality. There are all kinds of different views about that today. And then you've got the idea of God's judgment against sin. People don't like to talk about God's judgment. And nor do they want to consider God's provision of atonement for their sin. That's a controversial issue. And you, you put on top of all of that the very subject of eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Talking about controversy. People don't want to think about those things. People don't want to talk about those things. A lot of people just want to throw it out the window and dismiss it and say, well, that's just not true. And yet these topics are discussed and taught concerning in the Word of God, in the Holy Scriptures, and in spite of the controversy and the difficulty of those subjects, there is still this unity and harmony and oneness that permeates the entire collection of 66 books. The Bible remains unbroken, continuous, and whole as it unveils this united theme of God's redeeming plan to offer salvation to sinful men. It remains the unbroken, continuous whole of God's revelation, God's unveiling of this mystery of his plan, his redemption, which was in his mind before he even created the universe and now offers that to us through Jesus Christ in the gospel. So the very fact that we have a collection of 66 books that's united in its nature is evidence that only the mind of God could have done this. Another point is the subject of historicity. As you think about the Bible's historicity and how it is repeatedly, repeatedly verified by archaeology. Archaeology in and of itself doesn't prove the Bible to be true. But it does verify It does verify what the Bible says is true and and agrees with that. There's a verification of that. So here's a couple quotations for you. There's an archaeologist by the name of Albright here who once wrote, the excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th century, so you kind of go back a little bit earlier than our day and age, But you've got this skepticism that that was very prominent in the 18th and 19th centuries. He goes on to say, and certain phases of which still appear periodically. So that skepticism is still around us. 
Some of it had its origin in the 18th and 9th century, and it's still here. It's still, you, know, you can still find some of the same kind of arguments, is what he's saying. And so you've got the except, excessive you know, opposition you know, toward the Bible. He says, it goes on, has been progressively discredited. Even though you've got the opposition and they're trying to discredit the Bible, he says, they have been discredited by the verification of of archaeology. He goes on to say, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Even if you're not consider the more important value of the spiritual aspect and the eternal aspect of God's message. He says, just on, his, on the subject of history, he says, it's valuable. It's a valuable source of history. When people want to go back and study various peoples and places and cultures. Another quotation by the name of a man, Keith Schofel, says this, It is important to realize that archaeological excavations have produced ample evidence, ample evidence to prove unequivocally that the Bible is not a pious forgery. Critics will try to undermine the scriptures any way they can. And so he said, okay, archaeology has definitely proven that the Bible is not a pious forgery. Thus far, he goes on to say, no historical statement in the Bible. So what are you talking about? People, places, events. No historical statement in the Bible has been proven false on the basis of evidence retrieved through archaeological research. Those are pretty pretty bold statements as you think about the idea how, okay, when it comes to the historical nature of the Bible, it is credible, it is reliable, it is trustworthy based upon these scholars and and their involvement in archaeology. I want to use just one example, one of my favorite from history, and that is is really the subject of the Hittite nation. The Hittite nation was once a superpower in the ancient world around the 15th and the 16th centuries BC. But for, for several years, now actually the Bible mentions the name Hittite you know, in some form or fashion at least 48 times. So the name is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And it was... For a while, among the skeptics and the critics of the Bible, for many years, and so you're going back to the 1800s and 1700s, for many years, these skeptics and these critics of the Bible argued that the Hittites were a myth. And they really tried to preach that hard. The the Bible talks about a, uh, a nation named the Hittites, and it's just a myth. And then they tried to use that as a way to question the accuracy of the Bible. And the reason, and one reason they they chose this is because at that point there is no other record of that people except in the Bible. There is no other record at that time except what the Bible said about it. 
And so in their, in their jet, well, the Bible must be wrong because we don't know anything about this. And so, you know, the Bible must be wrong. It, we couldn't be wrong about it. Well, actually, Hittite discoveries began in 1876. And by 1906, there were an archaeologist by the name of Winkler who actually found the Hittite capital that's named Hattusa. And this is in the modern, region, you know, modern country of region of Turkey. And so today, archaeologists have unearthed you know, a number of facts about the nation. And, to, and at this point, they are able to conclude that this was a nation that not only existed for a, for a couple hundred years, like the 15th and 16th century. Actually, it is a nation that existed about 1,200 years. Yeah. How old are we as a nation? This nation you know, existed for around 1,200 years, and at, and at some point, they were a force to be contended with. You know, they were a large nation, and they were, very, they were once a very formidable nation. And so that has been you know, verified and discovered through all this archaeological, these digs and examination of the artifacts that they have recovered. To the point that now... You know, there is so much knowledge available about the Hittite people that Hittitology, I had to slow down to say that word, Hittitology is one of the major components of cuneiform studies at the University of Chicago. And so if you want a doctorate in cuneiform studies, Hittitology will be one of your major fields of study. That's how much information is now available the Bible, God's inspired word, told us that the Hittite nation was a real nation long before archaeology ever verified it. But archaeologically verified what the Bible said is true. What the Bible teaches is truth. And so just as the archaeologists you know, have indicated in their writings and the stuff, you know, it says there's, there has been no fact or detail in, on a historical basis proven to be false by archaeology. Whatever the Bible says about people, places, or, or events, archaeology time and time again verifies the credibility of it. And so that is just one aspect of the evidence that says, this is the work of God. You know, this, you know, how can 40 different writers you know, over a long period of time you know, write all these various details and always get it correct? Always get it correct. The mind of God had to be behind it. But to me, the greatest argument, you know, when you think about the defense for God's word, the inspiration of God's word, is really the subject of fulfilled prophecy. It testifies to us that this is truly divinely inspired. Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, it is you know, said that he, uh, he you know, said this you know, in his writings. He says, To declare a thing shall come to be long before it is in being, and then to bring about the very thing according to the same declaration, this or nothing is the work of God. So Justin Martyr said this back in the second century. The New Testament was completed in the first century. By the end of the first century, 
the New Testament was completed. And so by the second century already, you have this idea of defending Scripture, defending the authenticity of Scripture, defending the fact that this is the will and the word and the mind of God in our hands. We read earlier, appreciate Brother Roger reading Isaiah in chapter, Isaiah chapter 46. We read earlier about how God knows the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been saying, my purpose will be established. Only God can really do that. God knows the end from the beginning. He is able to foretell it accurately and then fulfill it. God can do that. Men can simply calculate or guess or speculate or maybe forecast. That's what men can do. But God can know it from the, you know, the end from the beginning and he declare it correctly, prophetically, and then make sure it's fulfilled in accuracy. I want to look at just a few examples on Isaiah of God doing that. God declaring the end from the beginning and then fulfilling it. Accomplishing his purpose, bringing it to pass. I like the phrase there at the end of verse 11. You know, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. And God has been doing that since the beginning of time. That he has been planning and speaking and fulfilling and doing it. And the prophecies in the Old Testament is a testimony to that. In Isaiah chapter 44, if you will. In Isaiah chapter 44, through Isaiah, through Isaiah, God foretold that King Cyrus of Persia would authorize the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And so in verse 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. You know, so he starts off by saying, I made everything. And then, at the very last verse of that chapter, he then says to the people of Judah through Isaiah, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, her foundation will be laid. Now let's let's, get this in, in the time frame of it. Now Isaiah prophesies around 740 to 700. You want to round it around 750? He's a nice number to kind of think about Isaiah around 750 B.C. is when Isaiah lived and was doing God's work of prophesying and teaching. King Cyrus reigned as king in Persia from 539 to 530 B.C. And so that's several years after the time of Isaiah, after God's revealed through Isaiah that his servant Cyrus is going to build Jerusalem and lay the foundation of the temple. Now, at the time that Isaiah is saying this, Jerusalem is built. At the time that he says that this temple 
is still standing. Now think about it. So that there, that here's Jerusalem. There's, you know, there's nothing that needs to be rebuilt yet. The temple doesn't need to be rebuilt either. And yet God says, my servant Cyrus is going to authorize this work of restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. Now that's over 160 years before the remnant returned. Before the remnant comes out of captivity from Babylon back home, that's when God said this. 160, over 160 years before they returned and before they laid that foundation of God's temple you know, that we read about in Ezra. This was also said before Cyrus was born. Cyrus was not even born yet. And God says, Cyrus will be my shepherd. Cyrus will be my servant that will make this happen. Now let's look at one more thought about Cyrus and the work of God that he accomplishes. In chapter 45, there's some other things he says about Cyrus besides the idea of restoration and rebuilding. You read there in verses 1 through 4, and he says, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. And so he is being chosen. Before he's born, Cyrus is being chosen of God, and he will carry out God's purpose. He says, Concerning Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go, go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. God says, I pick you, Cyrus. You don't even know me. He says, but I will use you and I will accomplish my work and it will be ultimately for the sake of my people, Israel and Jacob. But God said, but I'm using you to do it. You will subdue, he says, nations. You will loose the loins of kings. You will, you will gain treasures, hidden treasures from these realms. Drop down to verse 11 through 13 as God continues to speak of what Cyrus will accomplish. So it talks about the might here, the might of Cyrus you know, over the, these nations. In verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons. And you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth. And created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their hosts. I have aroused him. The him there is Cyrus. I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free. Without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Who can do that? Who can plan, foretell, and fulfill? Who can do that? God can. 
And God uses Isaiah as his chosen prophet at this time to reveal his will and purpose in, 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 in events in the future. Once again, when he talks about you know, the rebuilding and the restoring of Jerusalem, Jerusalem uh, and the temple, that's uh, over 160 years before that ever happens in the days you know, of Zerubbabel. When he talks here about the idea of Cyrus subduing nations and Cyrus you know, you know, building a city and letting his exiles go free, Babylon is not even the global power yet. You know, Israel, Judah is not in captivity yet. And so here is God speaking of the might and the purpose of Cyrus and his plan, describing something that is going to happen in the future. And Babylon is not the world power at the time. It's really not in existence in the sense of a global force. It's a nation, but it's not a global force yet. And Judah hasn't been carried away into captivity yet. And God is already saying, this is what you're going to do, Cyrus, for my people. You're going to do it because I planned it, and it's going to be done my way. The picture you have here on the PowerPoint is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And what it does, it records the Persian conquest of Babylon. And God said back in Isaiah 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him. He will build my city. He will let my exiles go free. Since God is sovereign, since God is the one who made earth and created man and stretched out the heavens and ordained all their hosts, as God has done that, he is sovereign. It is he who will free and would free exiles and build Jerusalem through his chosen instrument, his chosen vessel, Cyrus, the king. That's just one example of a multitude of prophecies. Very briefly, I want, as we conclude the lesson, I want to just get, you know, put up here a few that pertain to the, uh, Christ, the Messiah. All the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus have been fulfilled by Jesus in every detail. Only God could foreknow that. Only God could foretell that. Only God could fulfill that. And so in Isaiah, all these are just prophecies from Isaiah that, you know, very quickly I'm going to throw up to you. All the prophecies in Isaiah, you know, about God's anointed one, about God's uh, Messiah, is about 700 years or more before Jesus. So yes, the prophecy about Cyrus is over 160 years, you know, before it happened. Prophecy about Jesus are 700 or more years before it happens. For example, in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, you have the well-known prophecy about a virgin you know, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Jesus fulfilled that. And Matthew 1, 23 gives us a clear identification of that passage with Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9... He talks about the idea of a great light that's going to come. He says, there will, in verse 1 and 2, he says, There will no more be gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. And so those are two northern tribes. You know, you know, they were part of the, you know, the northern kingdom. You know, you know, and so you have, he says, you know, they were treat, that land was treated with contempt. 
But later on, he says, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Here's a prophecy about the ministry of Jesus Christ. That one day, God's going to shine a great light in those northern tribes you know, those people who were once in darkness. You turn over to chapter 11 and you see a prophecy about the Spirit of the Lord resting upon, upon God's chosen one. He said, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Matthew 3 tells us, At the time of his baptism, who descended and rested upon the Lord Jesus Christ? The Spirit, just as God said it would. Over 700 years before it happened. The last one, very quickly, is the well-known passage in Isaiah 53, where it speaks of God's suffering servant. And I want to focus primarily on the idea that suffering servant would bear the griefs and bear the sorrows of others because of their sins and not his own. In verse 3, it talks about he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But... He was pierced, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourgings, can you picture that? By his scourgings, we are healed. Fulfilled biblical prophecies testify to the truth that the Bible is truly divinely inspired. It is reliable, it is credible, it is trustworthy. In spite of what the world tries to do and has been trying to do for a long time, you know, trying to, to dismiss the accuracy, destroy its integrity, it is still found to be true. So think about it. It always measures up to the claim that it makes. It makes the claim that these are the very words of God. And it always measures up to that. You think about historical facts. In every detail, it's always accurate. Or even more so when you think about true prophecies. Predictions, foretellings, which are beyond men's ability to do or foresee for that matter. Particularly when you think about all the prophecies about Jesus. And we just looked at four in the book of Isaiah. There are so many more. And all those prophecies were spoken hundreds and even some thousands of years before Jesus came to earth. So Paul was right. As he guided by, was guided by the Holy Spirit. And he says, all scripture is inspired of God. And you and I are accountable to its teaching. And we will be judged 
by that teaching. But the teaching of God and of Christ is just that it is a message of hope. It is a message of salvation. And if you're here tonight and you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, then why not tonight confess that faith in Christ, in the Son of God, repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ? Because that's the teaching of Jesus. And that's the truth. We can help you spiritually any way tonight. Please come forward and make your wishes known while we stand and sing the psalm that's been selected.